to Luke chapter 22. We are going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves this morning and in the weeks to come and maybe a couple more months at the end of Jesus' life. And so it is an intense uh, sermon as it will be because we are in the crucifixion time of the Lord uh, now until the end and uh, of the Gospel of Luke. Well, with a chapter of the resurrection coming as well. While you're making your way to the 22nd chapter, I'll ask the Lord for more grace. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and your promise that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And so, Father God, we, we want to acknowledge that to you and uh, ask, Father God, that you would Uh, Open the eyes of our understanding this important communion Sunday. And and we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Right from the beginning, it is going to be kind of a serious um, sermon. And so if there are any young babies, uh, we have a nursery. We also have a cry room. We are talking about the crucifixion of the Son of God. And so the... The least distraction, the better. And so we have reserved seats as well in the back and in the lobby. So if that's the case, we so appreciate it. You're more than welcome. But uh, thank you for respecting the crucifixion of the Lord and a study thereof. All right. Well, I read about a fighter and a boxing promoter who was convicted of sports bribery. Here's the title of the article. Jury finds Las Vegas fight was fixed. I'll read a little bit of it. Las Vegas. A boxing promoter and fighter were convicted by a jury today of participating in a series of fixed fights from 1995 until August 2000 to enhance the boxing career of a professional heavyweight fighter, announced the U.S. District Attorney of Nevada. Robert Mitchell, age 42, of South Carolina, and heavyweight champion Thomas Williams, a.k.a. Top Dog. I didn't know that. Age 35, of Maryland, were each convicted of one count of conspiracy to commit sports bribery and one count of sports bribery itself. Under federal statutes, they are facing up to five years in prison and a $250,000 fine on each count. Quote, The public should be able to trust that professional sporting events have not been fixed, said the U.S. District Attorney. Quote, By returning guilty verdicts against both men, the jurors in Las Vegas have spoken that criminal conduct of this kind violates an important public trust in the integrity of sports. According to the court records, this boxing promoter and this heavyweight fighter were throwing fights for money, profit, and to advance another's career. Well, the fight in question occurred at the Paris Hilton Paris Hotel and Casino. (laughs) Well, we have hotel and Paris there. Now, come on, folks. (laughs) That was unfair. (laughs) You would have fallen into that trap, too. The Paris Hotel and Casino. Is it a Hilton? Probably not. 
Anyway, thank you for putting me down that bunny trail. The fight occurred at the Paris Hotel and Casino, where Williams intentionally lost in the first round. All right. We all know what's going on in a fixed fight. You, in- you only intentionally lose a competitive battle of any kind if there's something in it that you gain greater than actually winning the thing. And so, in this case, it was $40,000 to throw the fight. Well, usually this has a negative connotation to intentionally lose. However, you know, the idea of letting somebody else win isn't always evil. In fact, sometimes it's loving and wise. Let me give you an example. The strong dad who's wrestling down his young six-year-old cub, you know, to let him win in an arm wrestling match isn't really disingenuous. It's kind of encouraging and loving. We have an adult cousin of my children when one of the boys was about eight years old learning how to play chess. He loved that game. He was really good at it. But the adult cousin sat down and ruthlessly took him apart with joy. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I don't think I'm going to ever play this game again. And I took the cousin aside, the adult, and said, you know, it might have been nice to let him take a few moves. That would be sort of humble gesture and loving on your part to encourage him at this new uh, pastime of his. And she said, I never lose to anyone. Well, I said, I think if you would have lost, you might have been a greater person there. So, you know, sometimes you ask any spouse, sometimes there's something greater at stake than being right about something. And sometimes a spouse in wisdom will let the other one win. But really, they've won by losing. You see, Jesus upside down kingdom is a lot like that. The Son of God in Luke 22 is in the battle of his life and for his life. And as we all know, he's going to throw the fight. He's going to intentionally lose because something greater is at stake than a momentary win over Pilate, over Herod, over the Jews. There's something at stake here. The Bible says that would be you and me and the opportunity to live forever. He did it for love, for truth, for mercy. He laid down his life. Now, watching the replays, and I did, of those rigged boxing matches, it's somewhat obvious that the fight is fixed because the the punch went off. It didn't even hit his head, really. It kind of ricocheted off another glove and kind of just barely touched him, and then suddenly... He swoons down. It's like bad acting, you know. And, and everybody kind of raises one eyebrow like, oh, come on. First round, 27 seconds. You're the stronger guy, please. Ha. Ah, and any gospel reader has the same reaction. 
of reading and, and watching the ministry of Jesus Christ, this strong God-man, suddenly now weak and not capable of saving himself. I mean, we've seen our man calm a hurricane with his speech. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen this man put a legion of demons to flight with just a nod of his head. When a crowd was bent on throwing him off a cliff, the Bible says he simply walked through them. Even death itself loses its grip on someone when his voice commands it to do so. Just this very night, the night of his betrayal and arrest, the Roman cohort, the hundreds, they say, of soldiers dispatched to arrest Jesus. Come, he comes to them in the garden, and as we saw last time I spoke, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am. And they fall face down. Now, now suddenly he goes bound, <laughs> and suddenly he remains quiet while they're beating him. Raised eyebrow. This is rigged. It's rigged for a purpose so that man will have a hope of having his sins forgiven and washed away to have life. Somebody's got to pay. God is just. Righteousness and justice, quote, are the foundations of his throne. So somebody has to pay. You have to pay for your sin or a sin bearer of God's choosing, could stand in for you. And in order to do that, he has to throw the fight. And this morning, we're going to see that happen. And so here, now, let's revisit the last hours of Jesus' fight, learn his ways, be inspired by his love, and be transformed by his power. Here's some context before we pick up in verse 63. The Last Supper is over. Judas has betrayed him. The prayer time in Gethsemane has passed, and the cup remains. The Roman soldiers have led him off into the night. Verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subver subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. 
Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that, Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Finishing up now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he wanted to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort of miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there viciously accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they were enemies. This is the portion of scripture upon which we will reflect for this morning's message. It involves the legal proceedings of Jesus. This can get very complicated because there are two trials. There is a Jewish religious trial, and there is a Roman trial. What's confusing about the two trials are there that is that there are three phases of each trial. So there are six real separate distinct hearings, three with the Jews and three with the Romans. And some of the gospel writers add things that the others include things that the others do not. But altogether, I mean, if one gospel writer was to tell you the whole story, it would be too much. So all four of them share, and with what is called a harmony of the gospel, we can see the whole picture. And so we're going to take a look at just these verses here. They uh, unfold quite naturally. Uh, Jesus before the Jewish leaders. Jesus before Pilate, and Jesus before Herod. Now, number one, uh, Jesus goes before first the religious court. And first, I would like to say that if you are taking notes, you can reverse and invert the names. You can say it's the Jewish leaders stand before Jesus, and it's Herod stands before Jesus, and Pilate before Jesus because Jesus is the judge of the earth. He is the second person of the Godhead, and these men are evaluating Jesus, but in reality, the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures, the Bible, and God are revealing and evaluating them. They are being judged. And so we'll take a look at the first, the religious court. You know, of course, it's going to start with the Jewish high court because it is it is those Jews that have the problem with them all the way back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, it says, and the Pharisees got together to plot to kill Jesus. Mark chapter 1, 2, 3. That's pretty early. So, of course, it is the Jews and the Jewish um, trial that will start first. They are envious of his popularity. They feel threatened. They're offended that he's correcting their perverted form of Judaism and also calling them on the carpet for all their hypocritical deeds. 
There are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the scribes and the priests. All of they, all of them, collectively make up a council, just called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish high court. The word Sanhedrin just means council, like city council, or assembly. It had 70 members. And now he is going to be tried first by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Well, what we pick up with Luke, where we picked up this morning, there are two hearings that have already happened through the night. Luke is going to pick up at daybreak with the official Jewish hearing. But there's already been two preliminary hearings all through the night. Round one, from the Garden of Gethsemane, we go first to Annas' house. He's the high priest. They bring him over there, and that is where Jesus testifies under oath. And when Jesus said, when they said, tell us about your teaching, Jesus says to Annas, why don't you ask everybody? Because they know what I've been teaching. And an assistant struck Jesus in the mouth. And Jesus said, why do you hit me if I'm telling you the truth? They bind him. Now that's round one. Some other things happened there. It's just being interrogated. Annas was formerly the high priest. The current high priest is his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Now from Annas' house, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. The garden just happened. He's been arrested. He's gone now to Annas, the old man's house, just for formality. Now we'll do it officially. Now it's around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And he said a second preliminary hearing. Preliminary because you have to wait till daybreak to be legal. And so this is why it gets confusing. They're going to try him and convict him in the middle of the night. And then at daybreak, they're going to have yet the third phase now of the Jewish trial. They're going to repeat everything that just happened. And that's why it gets confusing. Nothing is binding in the middle of the night. Capital cases, according to the Jewish Talmud, you cannot try a capital case at night. It has to be from sunup to sundown. And so they're stuck. They've already done their deed, and now the tide is turning against Jesus. And where your verse picks up is now dawn is approaching, and it's at the end of that second phase, that illegal trial there at Caiaphas's place. All right, here's the paraphrase as we read. The high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now, you have heard it for yourself. What do you think? And they say, he is worthy of death. They're at Caiaphas's house, not yet. All right? Then they spit in his face and strike him with their fists. They mock him over and over again. Others blindfold him as your verse. Now we're in our verse now. And then they slap him with their fists. They say, you're a prophet, right? Which one of us just hit you? There we go. So now we're up to chronologically what's going on with Jesus and the trials. The guards now in between the second trial and the daybreak one now feel we can now abuse this man because he's been condemned, and we can do it with impunity. We can get away with this because everybody said he's worthy of death, and so now the mocking begins. The word for mocking 
empaizo in the Greek, it means to subject to derision, ridicule, to humiliate, or to make fun of. And they said many other insulting things to him. The word there is blasphemeo, where we get the word to blaspheme. To blaspheme means to insult not just anybody, but somebody really of honor and and a sacredness to it, to insult God. And so I wonder really what they were saying. And you know it pained his heart as it pains our hearts when we are insulted. And so they mock with the aid of the evil one prompting those insults. Now, the word to beat, dero, in the Greek means to strike with force or to pound or to thrash. So he's getting beat up pretty bad. It's not dawn yet. Dawn is just breaking. And he's getting beat up pretty bad and they're mocking him. You know, there's an old rhyme that goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. Uh, That is not true. Because we still smart from things said about us or to us from years ago. I had a friend at Bible college. We were talking about this, about how lasting pain can be from something somebody said or somebody mocked us. And he said, one morning, I was just 10 years old, and I was combing my hair in the mirror, and my mother said, too bad that you're not more attractive. Too bad you're not very handsome was her words, were her words. He, a grown man, kind of had tears in his eyes. He said, I've wrestled with that my whole life. Sticks and stones. I I would rather snap a bone and, and suffer for a few days and never hear of it again than be mocked and ridiculed. And he was mocked and ridiculed. You know, they talked about his mom. John chapter 8 said, excuse us, but we are not illegitimate children like you. Your mama, your mama, oh, she was engaged. Oh, and then magically, oh, it's the the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Your mama. How else to get to Jesus? You know, not very good. It's not very good, but he had to suffer for us. He had to suffer. You know, and why no response? Well, uh, as one writer said, he is determined to pay for our redemption through his utter humiliation. He will be humiliated so that we do not have to. And in this work, he doesn't flinch from paying down to the very last penny. Kent Hughes describes Jesus standing before his enemies in regal silence, dripping spittle and blood. Why no response? Well, number one, he did it to demonstrate the proper reply to hate is not more hate. The Bible affirms self-defense, but there are matters of the heart. We guard ourselves from becoming like the evil perpetrated to us. Secondly, he did it to demonstrate his trust in God the Father. 
that the father would vindicate him. He did not need to defend himself. This is a uh, recurring theme in the scriptures. The people of God are not called to defend themselves against insults and slander of, of that type, to guard our hearts. We are to trust ourselves to God and let God right the wrongs done to us. He is modeling. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Check this out. Leaving, for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps who committed no sin and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that one of the reasons Jesus was silent was to model to all Christians throughout all time how to handle that kind of abuse. You say nothing. You entrust yourself to God in one ear and out the other. That is what the Bible teaches. And he did so that every time we are humiliated, we can find refuge in a God who can say, I know exactly what you're going through. He is a sympathetic high priest. Now, dawn, round three. Dawn has come. Now it says at daybreak. That's Luke's way of saying, okay, the Sanhedrin is officially going to meet now. And you'll notice that there's no false witnesses at this trial because they already did their thing. They've already condemned him. They already passed sentence on him. So now all they need is to meet with the sun shining and get him to say the magic words, I am God. We just need you to say, yes, I am equal to God. I am the Messiah and the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's all they want now. So daybreak happens. Here's the paraphrase. At the first gleam of dawn, the whole religious mob comes together and they cut to the quick. If you're the Messiah, just say it. Jesus replies, if I do say so, you're not going to buy it. And if I ask you anything, you're not going to answer me. So I will take my, but one thing is true. I will take my appointed place at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Earlier in the evening, which is not recorded here, he adds, coming on the clouds with great glory. They all asked, so you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, that's what people are saying. Now, the you have said so in your Bibles, a perfect paraphrase for that is, that's what they say. Exactly. It is not saying, yes, exactly. It's saying, yeah, in a passive way. In other words, somebody asked me in the hallway. I said, hey, how's it going? And they said, are you the pastor? And I said, that's what they say. What was that? Was that a no? That was a yes. That's what they say. It's a total yes. It's another way of saying yes. And Mark's account says he says, I am. So in the you said so, he also says, I am. So he leaves nothing for chance. So now here's the paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. I tell you, you're not going to buy it. 
I've already told you, you've already condemned me and reached a verdict. Isn't it a little useless to ask me to tell you again? And so he's just calling them on the carpet. You know, let's go through this again, just so that because daylight came up and now we can really condemn you officially. And so he doesn't want to play the game. But he does say, oh, by the way, he adds, just unless there's some confusion, you will see me judging, sitting at God's right hand. In other words, you're judging me right now, but one day I'm going to be judging you. And so they tear their clothes. They had a little Velcro on there, a little Velcro type. They didn't actually have Velcro. <laughs> they, they did. They had it woven together in a way that you could, when you wanted to be really dramatic, you would grab your collar and tear and it would make that sound, like a Velcro sound. But it's just, just rip it, and their undergarment would be exposed right there. If someone died, you got bad news, or in this case, you were just so utterly shocked at the terrible thing that you just heard that he says, yes, it's true, I am guilty of being me. <laughs> you know, what a terrible thing. <laughs> and they will condemn him for being him. That is his crime as we see. So, no, but the show goes on. It's important to them. Well, which is more flattering to think of yourself? I'm open and seeking truth and I'm asking honest questions. Or I'm closed and rebellious and in my sin. Wouldn't you rather say I'm asking honest questions than saying I'm asking dishonest questions because I already know the truth and I don't want to adhere to it? So which is easier? So they're asking questions. Tell us, are you the son of God? There's been eight chapters of telling you. In John chapter 8, he said, I am, I am, I am. All the miracles, all the signs, it's in their presence. And now they say, well, the sun's come up. We just need, you know, the record right now. Can you say it one more time? And he says, yeah, one more time. Let's pretend. And he says, well, we're just investigating. We're just asking honest questions. No, you're not. You, truth-seeking becomes disingenuous when the object of what you're seeking is in your plain sight. Now you are no longer (laughs) seeking truth, but you're a big faker. Now, let me say, put it to you this way. Hey, Ross, where did you, uh, where's my tennis racket? Have you seen my tennis racket? And I say, it's in the trunk. Which car? My car, the blue one. I only have one car, so it's in my car, the blue one, the Civic. It's parked outside. Well, how do you know for sure? I just saw it there. Uh, Well, maybe someone moved it. Uh, No, it's there. I saw it five minutes ago. So did a whole bunch of us. We were all standing there with the trunk open. Is it in the front of the trunk or the back of the trunk? The back. Well, are you sure? Maybe it's been switched and it's not really my racket. And Maybe it's someone else's racket. Where did you park? In the driveway. Did you park nose in or nose out? Is there something you want to tell me about this tennis racket and why you don't really want it? 
but you want to pretend that you are interested in the tennis racket. Very, very clever. Very clever. Either that or you're mentally ill. I don't know which one it is. But some kind of game is being played here. So Jesus, tell us one more time. Are you really the Christ? Because we're so confused. We just want to know the truth. Murderers. Murderers. The problem for someone who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ is never a lack of evidence, but always a refusal to accept the evidence given. So Jesus says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. He also says, and if I ask you, you're not going to answer. Well, what does that mean? What would he ask him? He would evangelize them. Well, did you see the miracles? And remember about Psalm 110, verse 1 in the courts. How do you explain that? He's gospelizing them. So if I try to make a case for myself and ask you to come to a decision about who I am and that I'm the Messiah, do you believe in me, yes or no? If I ask you, you won't answer. So I already know that you're not going to cooperate. So why bother? And they say, well, it's important for our self-image. All right? Kind of thing. So during the, the, the Jewish trial... Jesus owns three titles before we move on. One is Messiah. It's the Hebrew word for anointed one. The Greek word for the same word is Christ. It's a title. It means this is God's only representative for salvation. He's the one. The only one. That's what Christ means. This is the door. No other doors. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Christ means. When you try to find another door, according to the Bible, in Jesus Christ, that door will open and there will be a, a cliff. And it will be your peril. He owns Messiah. He owns Son of Man in the passage. It comes from Daniel 7, as we've talked about before. Daniel 7 said, Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man, someone who looks like a man coming, eternal ruler, comes to earth in the clouds of glory to judge and to reign over the world. And Jesus says, that would be me. And then the Son of God. So the three titles, Messiah, Son of Man, and Son of God. By owning that he's the Son of God, because they say, are you the Son of God? And he says, yeah. The Jews understand that to mean exactly what it is, not like we are sons of God, but in a unique way that shares all the attributes of divinity, his character, his essence. He can say, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father, John chapter 14. I and the Father are one. That's a different kind of son of God than we, the children of God. And so now... They're going to take him to Pilate. They got what they wanted, a confession that he is the Messiah. And so they move to, to uh, Pilate now. He's the Roman governor. His official title is prefect, uh, but governor works, and the whole brood moves to Pilate's palace. And now they're ready for some solid accusations because they can't tell Pilate, look, you need to put him to death. We can't put him to death. We need your help. They can't say, you know what, he claimed to be the Son of God. Pilate will say, 
I'm not going to kill a guy for claiming to be a madman. All right? And so they need to find some charges. Charge number one, we have found this man subverting our nation. The word translated subverting, the King James has perverting, is the Greek verb diastropho, to cause to depart from accepted standard of oral or spiritual values to make crooked or to pervert. Here it means to mislead somebody. So he said, look, Pilate, he's misleading Jews. He's telling us about the Ten Commandments. He's saying, you know what? You break the Ten Commandments when you lust on a woman. That's crazy. You actually have to commit the adultery to be an adulterer. And Jesus is, is expanding the Ten Commandments. He's perverting. He's subverting Judaism. He works on Saturdays. He's perverting Judaism. He helps people on Saturday. He needs to die. Well, secondly, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. Caesar just rolls his eyes. You know why? I bet that he already heard. Here's this guy in the temple courts. He told everybody, hey, Pay up your taxes to Caesar. That news traveled fast. Okay? So everybody already knows. Here's a teacher, a Jewish teacher, who tells everybody to pay their taxes. So that didn't work. So then they get to number three. And he claims to be Christ, a king. Oh, we got Pilate's attention. The K word, king. Hmm. So though Jesus' enemies believe his claim to be son of man and son of God to be blasphemous, they know that the Roman governor will dismiss these as religious dispute, which he did. John 18 says, you try him according to your own laws. Goodbye. And then they bring up the king part. And he says, oh, hold on a second. All right? He wants to talk about that. He can't ignore that. John 18 will tell you the full conversation with Pilate. Let me read it to you. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus when he heard about the king part. So, you're the king of the Jews? Jesus said, is that your idea, or did other people talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people handed handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, look, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then, Pilate said. Jesus said, that's what they say. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Responded Pilate. With this, he went out once again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. All right, so what does Jesus do? He says, oh, king, 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 bing, bing, bing. He goes to Jesus, says, I'm a little concerned about one thing they said, the king thing. Are you trying to be a king here? And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not a king pilot like you think of king. I'm the king of truth. I'm the king of the world. Does that make sense to you? 
And Pilate goes off and says, oh, one of these guys, the king of truth. You know, so Pilate understands Jesus saying, you don't got to worry about me robbing your little job. I'm not that kind of king, but I was born to be a king and I am a king. And anybody on the side of truth and righteousness hears me. Well, that's not enough. Pilate says dismissed, done, innocent. Well, Jesus opponents won't let Pilate off that easily. Verse 5 says, but they insisted. He stirs up all the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he's made it all the way here. Oh, all right. He's going to be guilty of this one as well. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. And he stirs people up. I mean, really. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Caused a little bit of a commotion. Mary Magdalene used to be the town prostitute. Now she's wearing modest clothing. She's the front row of the synagogue or wherever women were allowed to sit. Matthew, the tax collector, greedy, is now sharing money instead of extorting money. Yeah. He stirred people up. I can look out here and I can tell you about families just in the last six months. Their whole lives are turned upside down in a beautiful way. They're not the same. The Neuerbergs, they went from not believing to believing, selling their possessions, downsizing, changing careers, helping and volunteering at the church. What happened? They got stirred up. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, stirred them up. It's all kinds of, I got a whole list of names, and I'm going to stop there because I'm not just, I got a list of stirries. (laughs) Jesus addresses Pilate's concerns, but he says, you know, Yes, it's true. I stir people up. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world's gone after him. He makes a difference. So he's guilty of being the Son of God, and he's guilty. Now, finally, uh, Pilate, in our final phase of this text, Pilate clearly is uncomfortable. He wants to clear him. He wants him to go away, and he hears, Listen, this guy has Stirred up everybody. And he's from Galilee. Ah, and out. So he says, that would be under Herod's jurisdiction. Take this guy across town to Herod's office and let Herod deal with him. I've already said he's innocent. And so they bring him to Herod. Here's the paraphrase, the final one. When Herod saw Jesus, he was thrilled because for a long time he wanted to see a a miracle. He bombarded him with question after question, but Jesus remained silent. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were all standing there viciously accusing Jesus. And then Herod and his soldiers just gave up, started ridiculing and mocking him. They dressed him in an elegant royal robe. They sent him back to Pilate. By the way, that day Herod and Pilate became buddies Before this, they had been enemies. The robe, lampros 
in the Greek. NIV says elegant. New King James, gorgeous. The word we get lamp from because it was iridescent. It glistened. It was a royal robe. John tells us it was purple. So he takes one of his old robes from the closet and drapes it on the battered, bloodied body of our Lord and says, so you're a king. Well, what happened there? He said, well, this is what you get for not answering my many questions. What were the questions? The questions weren't theological. They were asking for a miracle. That's what this guy wanted. So to ply one with many questions. For example, he said, you know, can I... Can you make something disappear? Can you turn one of these things into something else? Can you make something float in the air? On and on and on. And when Jesus, the Son of God, has nothing to say to you, it's a serious situation. Not one word. I believe he's the only person in the Bible Jesus doesn't utter a word to when faced. Face to face. Well, because he knows him. He's already called him a fox. Remember that sly, crafty guy? He beheaded Jesus' cousin. He's the Herod. John the Baptist called Herod out. One day the chariot came in through downtown Galilee, and John the Baptist got on a little box and said, Herod, it's not right that you seduced your brother's wife, who happened to be his niece. But his niece was married to Herod's brother, and he seduced her and married her. John the Baptist got on a box, called him out in front of everybody, John the, and Herod threw him into the dungeon. But get a load of this. Mark tells us that he liked him and gladly listened to him while he was in the dungeon and went to him often. And kept him safe because he knew he was a holy and righteous man and gladly heard him. Oh, there are many Herods. I like to hear it. I like to feel stirred up. I like to think about it, but I'm not going to do a thing about it. And one day, Herod got drunk at his own stag party. And his wife, who hated to hear the echoes from the dungeon about what she had done as an adulteress, he gets drunk and he says, oh... If you have your daughter, my stepdaughter, dance for me, I'll give you anything. And so it happens. And she says, you know what I want? I want John's head on a platter. And he said, okay. This is the guy who loves to hear the gospel preached and fears him and keeps him safe. He says, okay, cut his head off and bring it on a tray. And they do. No wonder Jesus doesn't say one word to this man. Not one word. Can you levitate this vase above your head? If you do, we'll believe in you. Not one word. And he says, you know what? We're done with you. I've lost interest. You know how to play my game? Get the robe. Stick it to his body. And bow down and worship him in a mock way. So that's what went on. We still have phase six. So you've gone through all the way until the last part of Pilate's next part is phase six of the Roman 
trial. You know, Herod and Pilate become friends. Why? Herod was honored that Pilate respected his jurisdiction. And then uh, Herod didn't decide. He said, hey, I'm going to give it back to Pontius Pilate, my old buddy. PP for short. You know, send it back to PP. And Pontius Pilate says, like, oh, you didn't decide? No, you, no you're the governor. You decide. And now, oh, there's a, there's a feeling of love in the room, which will quickly go away with that cell phone. <laughs> yeah, don't you love that? Praise the Lord. Moving on. <laughs> All right, so let me explain how communion happens. It's a wonderful thing, though intense and uncomfortable, to reflect on what happened to Jesus Christ on our behalf. He's mocked and ridiculed. He's beaten. He sponges up the wrath of God so that nobody else will have to bear it. But if you are like Herod and Pilate and Judas and other people who think it's a big joke then you'll have to pay. And everything that Jesus went through really is for, <laughs> totally game. You can expect that because he takes what you should have gotten as a sinner. But he's paid the price. He says, can I pick it up? Can I pick up the tab, please? And communion is a time we remember Jesus' generosity to pick up the tab And this is what it cost him to slide the card. It was what he endured this morning, as you read. And so here's how communion works at Calvary the Rock. First, we serve everybody the matzah cracker, which Jesus tells us is a a, uh, symbol of his broken body. Hold it, wait until I pray together with everybody, and then we eat it together. Now, if you don't wish to uh, participate in communion for any reason, simply decline being served. That's not a problem. But if you're a born-again Christian, you're welcome. If you're not a Christian yet, you need to receive Christ before you have Holy Communion. Then secondly, uh, there will be a cup passed, which is an emblem, a symbol of Jesus' blood shed on behalf of your sins as payment. Father God, thank you for this time when we get to reflect on what you went through to give us free salvation, free to us, very costly, for the Son of God. Thank you for your truth that sets our hearts free and the love gives us great confidence and joy. In Christ's name, amen. So receive the bread as it's passed. Even if you die, yet shall you live. His broken body instead of yours. His shed blood instead of yours. The wrath of God on him instead of you. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, good people, bad people, rich people, poor people, smart people, 
Not so smart people. <laughs> can come. Whoever trusts. Let's come. I'll pay the way. But you're ha- going to have to bow the knee. Humble yourself and admit you, you're a lost and helpless sinner. And that little hurdle will be the cause of millions of souls who will perish and go into eternal damnation just because they did not want to humble themselves. And receive the Lord. Father, we thank you for your broken body, the symbol of bread that gives life to our physical bodies. And you say, this crucifixion, trust in me, will give you life spiritually forever. So we eat of what you've done for us on the cross as a symbol of getting it inside of our hearts and our spirits as food goes into our bodies. So this gospel, the cross, we embrace it in our hearts and take it in just like we do now by eating this bread. In Christ's name, eat the bread together. And now the cup. Jesus didn't suffer to bum anybody out. And he certainly said, hey, do this often and remember me as you share communion. Because he wanted us to be encouraged. See me on that cross thinking about you. I'm think I'm doing I'm in the strength and inspiration to to stand there and let them do that to me without saying a word was for you. I was thinking about you. You inspired me to do that. That's a demonstration of what I think about you. And when I think about you and me together, I could get on that cross and do it again if I had to. That ought to cheer somebody up. It's really quite a fascinating, profound truth. God's love lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God, made so by this, the shed blood of the second person of the Godhead. Innocent. He said to them, which one of you can just accuse me of one, find one sin in my entire life? He said that. They couldn't find one sin perfectly. The only guiltless man to ever live condemned like that. Let the seriousness and the solemnity of this moment reach you and make a difference. Go so quick back to life. Let this sink into your ears and your heart. This is the kind of thing that had to happen because of sin. Sin is a little bit more serious than we think. It necessitated that. 
Let his love grab a hold of you and let it, this motivate you to do great things. Go home and not have to have the last word, not have to defend yourself and not have to pick a fight and not have to be insecure, depressed, or make it all about you. I was talking about me there. I was thinking of all the things that I do. Don't have to do that when I'm loved like that, that kind of ferocious love, the one who created us. Now, Father, we are so thankful that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins, past, present, and future. Thank you. With glad hearts, we receive the, the symbol of what you poured out we read about this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Drink the cup together. Let's stand and sing the closing song. I want to make sure that it's clear to uh, folks who aren't Christian, who may have eaten the bread and drank the cup. That doesn't save you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you have not bowed your will to him, if you've not accepted Christ as your Lord and let him come in to rule your life, you can drink the whole thing. It's not going to mean a thing. This is a reflection of what happened in our hearts. So make sure you don't leave this place with false security. You know, I'm kind of open to God and, you know, I'm open to a lot of things. And I I took just in case, you know, I want to cover all my bases. No, it meant nothing. He must be Lord alone, exclusively. You must bow the knee to Christ Jesus, for he's the only way to be saved. And it's a quick sinner's prayer. God, I'm a sinner. I've turned from my sins. I bow before you. Forgive me. Be my Lord. Do it in your own way and your own words. And the Bible says, he who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So thank you, Father God, for your great love. We're encouraged and motivated and inspired and lifted up from our lowly estate, Lord, because of the greatness of your compassion and mercy. Thank you, Father God, for your great love. We commit ourselves to you. Now keep us in step with your love and help us to reflect that love to a lost and dying world, people in need all around us. Help us share that love now with others. In Christ's name, amen. And God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday or next Sunday. God bless you.